I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here. Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. And I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Why don't we begin with a prayer? Lord, thank you for life and thank you for your spirit. Thank you for loving us so much. You sent us your only begotten son. And uh, we just pray that we will draw closer to him because of, uh, of you and the truth. And we pray that tonight uh, the truth will be discussed in some means. And we just pray that... Uh, those who are seeking will find. Those who are seeking to be free will become free and liberated, which only really comes by and through uh, Jesus Christ. So we love you and we thank you. Bless our staff and, and volunteers and everybody in the ministry. In Jesus' name, amen. Saw a movie the other day which was recommended to me by an actual movie director, Richard Dutcher, and it was the latest film by Martin Scorsese, and it's titled Silence. Now, uh, it's a long movie, and it is, it's ponderous, but uh, I enjoyed it because he dealt with uh, topics that we cover on the show, devotion, dogma, church authority, suffering for Christ, uh, what it really means to have a relationship with God uh, versus just outward uh, conformity to religion, and it's getting nothing at all from heinous Hollywood because heinous Hollywood does not support uh, things of the faith traditionally. Sometimes they do, but usually it doesn't. So uh, I just want to take a time and recommend Silence uh, by uh, Martin Scorsese, Martin Scorsese, however you say it. And, uh, and take the time if you want. Like I said, it takes some time. It's about two Catholic priests going into Japan uh, way back in the, in the day. But well worth it when you finally get to the message, I think. With that, let's take a minute and talk about ideas on raising Christian kids. And we do this because we get emails saying, how would you do this? Would you do that? Would you pray with your kids if they're not Christian? What if you've come out of Mormonism and they don't know the Lord yet? I personally think it's really important to instill biblical principles in your children when they're young. But I do it, I think it's a, a little bit differently than how many Christians would do it. Uh, in my estimation, this is superior to sitting down and telling them that they can do this, they can't do that. God isn't happy with them if they don't do this. God is very angry if they do that. 
things like that. And the reason is because I don't think their brains are really ready to apply logic and reason and understanding to, the, to God and uh, necessarily. I know some are. Some children are born again very young and they have that capacity. But sometimes people just interpret that as God is angry and, and they walk around in guilt and shame for the rest of their life. So what justification do I have for even approaching it this way? Well, years of watching dogmatic, Bible-thumping Christians and dogmatic, Book of Mormon-thumping Mormons literally drive their children into the arms of the world. I mean, just by virtue of, uh, 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 uh. And the kids are like, I don't want anything to do with this guy. He scares me. So when they're young, I do think it's important, however, to take biblical principles and teach them those principles so when they become of age and they can start reading the Bible, they will resonate to the principles not really knowing that they had been taught them prior to it happening. I was blessed with three daughters uh, and being a bad boy from basically the crib, I know what those daughters were headed for when it came to meeting boys in junior high school, etc. So I took a pr biblical principle from Proverbs 31.10, and it's who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies. You've all heard that passage. And so instead of just telling them that you need to be virtuous, the value of that is far above rubies, I, I, we, I would take this illustration and I would sit them down and especially just for some parents, if you want uh, some, something that might help, there's a twilight time when kids are falling asleep. I'm talking about young kids, two, three, four, five, seven, up in there. And when they're falling asleep, they're really open to learning. So if you're a father or mother and you have time to spend with them at that time, that's when to tell them these stories because they're relaxed and their minds are thinking about these things. And so I would tell my daughters, do you know what your worth is in this world? And I'd say it's like having a wheelbarrow full of diamonds. And I explained to them what a wheelbarrow is. It's a big like pot, a big uh, barrow, and, and it has handles on it, it has a wheel on the front, and you move manure and dirt and weeds and stuff with it. Well, I would tell them, you are like a big wheelbarrow full of diamonds. Just, and, they, and, and I would say, guess what? And they'd say, what? And I'd say, a lot of people, especially boys, they want to take those diamonds from you. And so, and you can see, see their little wheels turning. And, and I'd say, see, when some boys are young, especially many boys, and even some when they get older, they love to steal girls' diamonds. And they will do anything to try to get them from you. How do they do it? Do you know how? And they'd say, no. And I'd say, well, they're, they're tricky, 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 you know. And they'll throw rocks in the way so you'll hit a bump and you'll spill some. Or they'll tell you to look that way or they'll tell you to look into their eyes and they'll put them in their pockets. And they're all about taking these diamonds and they're very tricky. So here's the deal. Often they will take those diamonds until they're all gone. And that wheelbarrow is empty. And then do you know what happens a lot? They leave then. They go to find someone else to take their diamonds. And they'll say, they will. And, and I'd say, yeah. And sometimes girls want to knock those diamonds out of the wheelbarrow too. So here's the thing. You need to be smart. You are worth a lot. Those diamonds, that's a, those are all you. And never let anyone take them. Girl or boy, knock them out. So to wrap this all up, say something like, so this is the deal. Be really smart. Keep your diamonds. Keep all of them. You don't have to give them to anybody. Maybe there'll come a time in your life when you're older when you'll want to share 
uh, your wealth with somebody, but we'll talk about that another day. And that's what I'd do if I had kids today when it came to teaching biblical principles, no matter what it is. Now, if the Bible lays out a really good story, which it does all over the place, share those stories, Jonah and the whale, Noah and the ark. But if they're principles about certain things that are tough to get, maybe even about Jesus, love, grace, salvation, those types of things, you might reinterpret them, tell them the story, teach them the principle, and then wait for a time when the Bible will start opening up to them and they can get what the Word actually says. And with that, how about a moment from the Word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. I'm going to ask you to try to rethink how you read this uh, scripture in just a second. Many people are under the notion that afterlife punishment today is in the control of Satan, that he is laughing and mocking his pitchfork, his fork tail, and, and, uh, and that this notion helps shape the way they read and understand scripture. For example, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we read at verse 6, Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recon recompense tribulation, to them that trouble you, saints at Thessalonica, and to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That last passage I want to talk about. What Paul is saying is, listen, these people who are troubling you and trying you and causing all kinds of difficulty for you, well, in flaming fire, God is going to take vengeance upon them who don't obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and, and that's, so he sets up that last passage, verse 9, which we'll talk about. In this passage, this recompense of tribulation on those who troubled them is discussed. And he gives the time frame of when this would happen. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so from this, we see that those who are troubled uh, with them, they would see recompense, a recompensatory, if that's a word, tribulation, fall upon those who are testing and trying them when the Lord would be revealed with, from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, it says, right? Taking vengeance on them that know not God nor obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in verse eight, we are first introduced to something the Lord would bring with him to take vengeance and recompense those that trouble them. Flaming fire, the Lord is bringing that with him. Okay? That's a very different picture than Satan being in control of the flames and fire and mocking and laughing. Ah, ha, ha, ha. It's the Lord who's bringing that flaming fire with him. And then speaking of those who would be punished, we come to verse 9, which if you read it with certain eyes, you'll understand it in a certain way. But if you shift and just try to see it in a different way, you might see it differently. Verse 9 says, Who, speaking of those people shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Let me examine this picture, this scripture with you just for a minute. First, some context and support. 
These passages are all about what will happen to the enemies of the saints when Jesus returns. The theme is that fire is going to recompense the evil they've done. This is consistent with other passages relative to Jesus' return to the earth. He's going to come with fire, and that fire is going to bring that judgment. For instance, 2 Thessalonians 2.8 says, And then shall the wicked be revealed, the wicked's capitalized, talking about the son of perdition, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. It's the Lord who's bringing that brightness that is going to destroy the wicked, capital W. Hebrews 10, 27 says, But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Again, contextually speaking, it's God, it's Jesus' presence that is going to bring the fiery indignation. It's not Satan. He does not have that fire to do. It is God. Also, 1 Peter 3, 7 says, But the heavens and earth, which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So we can agree that the fire and light of the Lord is going to bring judgment upon the ungodly. Whether it's in the future or whether it's in the past, that's up to you. Where is the fire coming from? From the presence of the Lord. That's where it's coming from. Is the Lord eternal? Absolutely. Is he everlasting? He is everlasting. So listen, therefore the fire that he gives off is everlasting. That's everlasting fire because he's everlasting. It is everlasting fire. Its effects are everlasting. What it consumes are gone forever. Okay, what it consumes. And so reread this passage with me. Who shall be punished, talking about the evil, with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. The everlasting destruction comes from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That is what is wiping these people out is his glory. It is not anything but his presence. And that's an everlasting, did you catch it? Who the wicked persecutor shall be punished that word punished is a pool of mine. It does not mean wiped out completely. It means, it means uh, decimated. It, it means punished and purged with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. You see, to reword this, I suggest it's saying the wicked will be punished with God's destruction, which is the result of his presence that can't help but exude the glory of who he is when he arrives. Rethink as you read that scripture, set aside the traditions of religion. Who would read that and say, be punished with everlasting destruction. You're going to be in this forever and ever and ever. I cannot see it that way when I read it now with the eyes that God has given me, I believe. All right, let me take a drink and we are going to move on into something. I anticipated to do part four of no more hacking at the branches, but something came up in my head and so I think I'm going to run with it. Let's see how it works. We'll continue with no more hacking at the branches later. I think people need to hear this for whatever it's worth. Uh, two wheelbarrows. They're on the board. Delaney, can you show those? <laughs> those are wheelbarrows, if you can believe it. 
I think Warren just asked me if, I don't know what he asked me, but those are wheelbarrows. So when we begin our walk with the Lord, having been, having received him by the Spirit, we have at this point in all probability come to understand, at least in part, that he has taken our sin and we have been forgiven. Many people lose track of this fact, but for the sake of illustration, let, let's assume that the individual realizes this. We might liken this. Delaney, come with me to the board really quick. Derek's out of town. So we might liken this realization to realizing that we, this is our wheelbarrow, have been carrying around a load of difficulty, problems, sin, burdens, and this is God's wheelbarrow, Jesus, he's holding it, we're holding ours, and we're walking together now, and what happens is when we realize that he has taken our sin, what happens, a lot of people say, well, that was my sin, I'll let him take that much, he's taken my sin, I will continue to live my life with everything else that's around me, but I will let Jesus take my sin. Now, as a Christian, I'm responsible for the life I'm living and for what I'm doing, and that's kind of how many people will live their Christian life. Jesus paid for my sin, but that's about where it begins and ends. He's done his part, I've done my part, and now I'm a Christian person. In my estimation, what I want to promote to you is God wants everything. He wants that wheelbarrow that we have emptied, emptied, and he wants all of it in his, everything about us. Um, and there's scriptural passages to support this. We are dead to Christ, dead in Christ. We are buried with Christ. Passages like that kind of intimate that we are to be dead now to the things in our lives. All the burdens, all the cares, all the sicknesses, all the woes, all the hurts, all the future plans, all the present needs, they are in his wheelbarrow, not in ours. Very few people have the ability or the inclination, the desire, or they have fear. They don't want to empty the wheelbarrow. It's easier for them to believe they can manage the operation and the pushing it forward than to turn it all over to Jesus. And that's what I want to talk to you about. For me, as a human being, this was really difficult to get. I am a, I can do this myself kind of person. And uh, he, he's allowed me to try in many, many ways. And I've had some big failures in many areas when I have said I can still do it. Now, we are not talking about just some things. I am trying to be as radical as I possibly can to try to convey to you to give him everything, every plan. And it's not rhetoric. It is, it is possible to have that mindset and to attempt to do it. We'll take things back, but stay with me. Over the course of my Christian life of learning more and more to put more of the load Sometimes all of it, for brief periods of time on him, I've learned things. First, every single item in your wheelbarrow can be better managed by him than by you. Every single one. It's not easy because most of the time we don't know how to give it over to him. 
and let alone to give it over to him. And so it takes time and trials and failures and successes. And it, it's a minute to minute almost thing that you over time will just do naturally once you learn. But before that, it's a struggle. It's a tug of war between giving up your will and your ways over to him. Uh, clarity seems to come as we do this. And so there's, you got to have a desire in your heart first to want him to do that. And if you don't have that desire, I'm at a loss of how to get it, except reading scripture that tells you to trust the Lord in all your, with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding, things like that. Commit to trusting to him and then do it. Commit to him that I am going to trust you with everything and then do it. And then repeatedly turn your will over to him. Every day, every morning, this day is yours. This, this plan is yours. It is not mine. I want you to do it. We hear people talk about it, but it's not Christian rhetoric. It is a reality. And also, along the way, recognize his hand in all things. It also helps to ask him to be present in your life. We used to say in our school of ministry, start off the day and just say, Lord, it's yours. You take over. I will follow you. So in your morning prayer, your morning drive, your get to work, drinking your coffee, whatever, maybe give the day to, Lord, to the Lord. Say, it's yours. You show me. It's frightening, isn't it? I mean, I've got a stack of things I've got to do. Lord, it's yours? Try it, okay? Secondly, understand that the ability to give everything over to him is based on first faith and then trust. There's a difference between faith and trust. Faith says, I believe and I understand what you say you can do. Trust is letting him do it. Faith is saying, I do believe this, but trust is actually letting him do it. It's almost as if faith is in the head and heart, but trust is in the hands. Faith is in the head and heart. Trust is in the, okay, I'll let you have it. Uh, I really do believe that if you can trust the Lord, you are, you are moving forward in the faith. And it's a day-to-day -day choice. Third, expect challenges and tests to your trust in him. When you give it to him, sometimes he'll let the ball drop. And you'll be like, I thought you were going to take care of it. You think he's let the ball drop. But in reality, he is going to pick it up later. And so tell the Lord, he knows how he's created you. He knows your makeup. He knows your skill and your ways. And he will make things happen, but it's going to be in his time. So let's say that it's the desire of your heart to own a big cattle ranch, to retire on a big cattle ranch. That's the desire of your heart. He's created you. It's not an unrighteous desire. You love cattle and you love ranch. And so you want a cattle ranch, right? And so you have this desire. So go to God and say, God, I want a cattle ranch. Now, you don't have the means. You don't have any ability. You don't know how it's going to happen. Go to him and say, I trust you. I'm not going to make this happen. I'm going to put it in your hands. Now, if he doesn't do it, it's, it's for your own good. And it's, he knows the righteousness of his desires for your life. But if it is, if he does grant the desires of the human heart. He does grant the righteous desires. So if you desire it, you're going to best get it by trusting him, if you're a Christian. Now, along the way, you may want to take a loan out and buy your cattle ranch. Don't do it. You might want to, 
the Lord might move you to a city far away from cattle branches and you might become very despondent. Trust him. Don't let go of it. If that's what you want, just keep talking to him. And, and you, might con you might consider doing all sorts of things on your own. Don't get ahead of him. Don't lag too far behind him. Just trust and wait. Unfortunately, it's in this waiting period where most of us fail. We say, nah, he's really not interested in this micromanagement of my life. I've got to step in and take care of this. And uh, I have found in my life that when I do that, that's when chaos and difficulty comes. Fourth, uh, if you trust in him, trust in him when things don't seem to be working. And so if you have a plan and you have a dream and you have a hope and you've trusted in him and it, all the appearances are it's not going to happen. You trust in him. If God told you to buy a stock, he really told you to buy a stock through the spirit and you bought the stock and it fell, you would be, God didn't tell me. If you bought it and it rose, you would say, God told me, right? Well, if he told you to buy the stock and it falls and he told you, then maybe it's time to buy more. You get what I'm saying is you trust him when it goes against you and you trust him when it goes for you. You trust him if you are going to live in trust and faith in him. All right. Finally, and this has been made at every step, be patient and wait on the Lord. Be patient and wait. So I just want to wrap up this part in every area. And I'm not kidding. I am not a mystical guy in every area of my life where I have had deep-seated desires, imagery of what I desired in my life, I've gotten. It's because of him. Every area of my life where I have decided to manage it myself, I have not gotten it. It's only when I have backed off and said, it's you, you do it, he's given it over time. I'm going to give you some examples, and they're all true. They're exactly how I'll tell them, and they've happened to me. It's just a matter of do you trust God with the problems and difficulties in your life, or do you trust yourself more? The first one was when uh, our family was active in the LDS faith, and I discovered and I wanted the truth. I sought the truth. I said, give us the truth. He gave me the truth. He didn't give anybody else the truth when he gave it to me. And I had to trust that he would take care of my wife and children. And that was one of the first times I did say, I'm going to trust him. I just have to trust him. I'm not going to take it in my hands. I'm not going to divorce my wife. I'm not going to force my children into Christianity. I'm not going to spend my time bashing on the LDS church in front of them. I'm going to trust God will take care of things. And it took years, but as I committed to him, and it's not my works, it's just as I died and just threw my hands up, he not only brought my family, my three daughters, my wife out of Mormonism, but he gave them insights into what the truth is about himself. He gave them a keen understanding of faith and love. He gave them more 
than I could have given them. You know what I wanted when we came out? I wanted my kids just to go to Calvary Chapel and just be happy sitting there and being Calvary Chapel family, just like they were Mormon family. That's all I wanted. But God said, no, I'm going to take them out, but I'm going to take them and give them more than you can give. And I'm going to teach them more. And he does it if you trust him. Secondly, I entered in, this is a difficult one, but I'm going to say it. I entered in our marriage a very defective man. Uh, in part due to my nurture and experiences in my life, partly due to genetics. But bottom line, I was a womanizer. Okay? And I have been since kindergarten. Womanizing in kindergarten. I've been doing it. And it's, I still am in my flesh. If my, I let my flesh reign, I will womanize. That's what I do. And so it's the thorn in my side. But it's not just sex and it's not just affairs. It's having as many relationships with women as I possibly could. If I could have 10, I'd have 10 in different, every port, like they say about the sailors. It was nothing against my wife. Nothing, but it's a brutal character flaw that is in my flesh. And so, from my experience, from which to recover from or overcome is really difficult for, for people once they've been down that road, especially from a young age. So, I could spend hours on whys and the hows, but it's irrelevant. It is the sin of my person. There came a time once I came to faith where both Mary and I individually, we didn't sit down and make this decision. She made the decision. I made the decision. We're going to trust him with this. We're not going to worry about anything else except what he does with it. Over time, trials, errors, failures, difficulties, God, not man, not a man on earth could tell me to do something different. But God brought me to the place where I was able, I had the strength to choose my wife and to choose fidelity and to choose God over myself. It did not come through anything but him. And it came when I said, white flags, I'm done. Nothing I can do. And it came, actually, I think, I didn't ask her about this, but before I did the show, but I think my wife said, white flags. I'm not going to try to manage this. I'm going to let God step in and do the miracle. And it's all by and through him, his spirit and his strength. So over the course of the years of doing the show, and I say, I'm a terrible man, I'm a sinner. This is not a joke, you know? And, and, and then violence is the other part of my nature too. And it's taken years to overcome very violent propensities. And, but he has worked. He has worked. There's not a church or man or system on earth that would fix these things. Not, not one. Next example. Always wanted, dreamed, longed for, hoped to get to a place where I could spend my days creating and putting the things that churn in my head since I was a kid out on paper. And in 2005, after going through almost two decades of difficulty, we got a call 
and I'm, I'm working graveyard shifts. We don't have any money. I've been fired. I'm quitting. I'm working in these parks for nothing. And uh, I entered school as a 44-year-old man. And in my second year of school, as I invited to do my own television program, never did it before. And the creativity in the realms of the Lord now all funneled in. Everything I had been involved in before funneled in to be worked with, with by him. Nothing I did before ever came to anything of fruition. Nothing really worked until it was time. And he said, I'm going to use you now. Will you let me? And you trust him. So now I spend my days writing and teaching and speaking and creating uh, shows and presenting sermons and writing books and put icing on the cake. God has enabled me to work in a median untouched by, uh, by other artists. And I'm able to do these things in an environment that people dream about. They dream about it. He's let it happen. I have not been able to do it on my own, but he's let it happen. Everybody I see in the, during the day, they think I'm homeless. I sit there in the same places, there's, there's that homeless guy. And I sit there and I do the things that God wants me to do. He's, and, and in this is freedom and complete liberty because he will grant that to you if you let him. So I'm working in a creative ministry. All three of my daughters, my wife are involved. We have a church, we have a studio, we have a workshop. None of it came about by my abilities, none of it. Every time I try, he shuts me down. It came by his. One, uh, two, couple more. My wife has always had a desire to work in the medical field. She studied political science and she she just, it just thought, I'm too old, it's never going to happen. Something in the medical field. So it comes time to moving up here. After everything we've been through, she's in Southern California, I'm up here. We've gone 10 years of me traveling, and it's like, it's time to move up here with the family. And she's like, yeah, that's not happening. I, I, I'm going to find a job in Southern California. So she put out flyers. She put out resumes. She went to places. She had interviews. Nothing Nothing worked. She gave it her all to find work down there, to keep our house down there so that she could keep living there and we could, I could keep traveling back and forth because she loves it there and that's how it was. But that was by her flesh. She was saying, I'm going to do it. So, you know, go keep going. And she started to be like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I just, I'm, no one wants me and I'm just too old and I can't get a job. And because God was just slam, 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 slam. You gonna do it, Mary? Go ahead. Nothing. So she comes up here immediately. Jobs. Boom, 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 boom. It's not the economy here. Uh, Southern California is a burgeoning economy. Jobs lining up. So she's taking these jobs. She has a tooth go bad. She goes into the dentist and he's like, yeah, looking, you know, looking for a job. He's like, sure, yeah. So now she is working toward full time learning the trade of being a dental assistant with him in the office. She's doing impressions. She's doing x-rays. She's reading charts. She's doing the very thing that she's always wanted to have a finger in somehow without any training or background when she finally let go. She let go and surrendered. And when she least expected it, he stepped up to the plate and he took care of her. He gave her her heart's desires, righteous desires. I've always had personal trouble accepting Jesus' words when he said in Matthew 6, 
I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body more than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are you not much better, much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to his height? You think you can do it? And why take you thought for clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. Yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which is today and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Take no thought, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after these things do the Gentiles seek, the non-believers. For your heavenly Father knows what you have need, that you have need of all these things. Therefore take no thought for tomorrow. For tomorrow shall take thought for the things itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil itself. In the end, this perhaps is the overall greatest obstacle to learning to trust God with everything. And I mean everything. Along the way, there are times when we just don't think he's going to put food on the table. He's not going to give us the clothes we need. He's not going to pay those medical bills. We believe that. We don't trust him. We have faith in him, but we don't trust him. And uh, in the end, I simply have not believed that God can make ends meet in times when I've failed. That's what it comes down to. Jesus says differently. I was wrong. Jesus is right. So the best thing about all this is emancipation, freedom from the world, freedom from the ways of men, freedom from the ways of everything. If you are able to place everything in your wheelbarrow in his, everything, let him wheel it. You walk alongside. Oh, you're going to work. You'll do things. Believe me, you will do things because he's going to grant you the desires of your heart. And I can guarantee whatever those desires are, they're going to require work. But you'll be doing the work that you were made that he created you to do. And in that there is a freedom like no other. And for some reason, this was just heavy on my heart. And I thought I would throw that into the mix of everything we're covering on the show before we continue on with hacking at the root instead of the branches next week. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. Take a look at this.
up contribute to put all that stuff together. It's beautiful work. All right, uh, we have Angela from Gustine, California on line one. Angela, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, yes, Sean. I am calling because I um, just saw um, what you said about in Matthew, uh, and I am in the process of leaving LDS Church. Um, and that really spoke to me because my husband and I were falling on hard times, and um, we, of course, couldn't pay a tithe, and um, we required assistance from the church. And they said that they would give it freely if we just paid our guide. They'd help, but they would help us. They would help us. And it finally got to the point where the help was, was dropped because either we could pay the full guide or they could help us, vice versa, vice versa. And I was wondering if that is a common thing in an LDS church where they just demand everything from you and then kind of dingle donuts in front of you, or if that's just a... Uh, a thing that we, we just happen to experience so totally off. Well, in my experience, Angela, it, it, it's all dependent on several factors. One is the people involved and the, and the leadership's view of those people. So your bishop or your stake president's view of you and your husband and your family. And they may also take into consideration uh, if you are a tithe payer and have been, and they may look at those records. The other thing, it might be the benevolent uh, heart of the bishop himself. Sometimes there are bishops that are extremely loving and kind and will help people. And sometimes there are people who run it so much like a business that people can get very little help. Uh, I, I know of a woman who has been on the dole of the LDS church. Her husband died of cancer when she was young with four uh, sons and their names are no. the Campbells. And the church took, has continued to take care of them all the way through their young life. So I know that they have and will do that. Uh, but at the same time, I hear horror stories of people in need and how there are qualifications for receiving benevolence. So it's a case-by-case -case basis. And I don't think there's a general rule, uh, really, uh, on how to look at the LDS and how they give. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but I will tell you this, and, and those passages are tough in our day and age to believe them. But, uh, Angela, the more you are really willing to give your heart over to trusting God, he will fill in those gaps better than the LDS church could ever do it or would ever do it. But it's going to take some maturity and growth on you and your husband's part, and it doesn't come easily. And so, but I do petition you as a believer to try to seek him that way if, it, if and when possible. Okay. Thanks so much for calling. Thank you, Sean. Okay, talk to you later. Bye. Bye-bye. It's tough, huh? You, you have kids who are uh, sick and they need the prescriptions filled, and you've got $20 in the bank, uh, and, you know, it's, it's a tough world. Uh, and it's not just monetary. It's, it's just in every way. Uh, but... I trust in Jesus' words what he said there, that the Father, he knows when a sparrow falls. He knows the counts of the hair on our head. He knows all these things. He knows, and he is a searcher of the heart, and he, he wants to help you know him and grow in him. So he doesn't just lay out a bounty of everything we want in, in, our, in our lap. He, he does not make it really easy, but, but he does make it miraculous. 
and he does have it come through in ways that are outside of our manipulations. So uh, keep going, Angela. Keep trying. This is from Hannah E. She says, uh, I ordered in his word CDs for Christmas and they have been such a blessing to my family. It's awesome to hear my 13 and 12 year olds singing scripture with me in the car. Uh, bless your show and family in Jesus name. And that's what it's for is to learn scripture. And if you're going to get scripture into kids heads, music is a great way to do it. And that's why we do it. So thank you so much for sending that. Uh, we are going to possibly, I'm waiting to see for sure. Uh, but next week we have somebody from Logan. He, his wife, I think he has six kids, maybe four have left Mormonism, but they have left Mormonism for non-institutional Mormonism. In other words, they're doing Mormonism, but it's out. they've taken their names off the records. They don't agree with present-day Mormon leadership, but they believe everything in Joseph Smith and believe that uh, all the things he represented and taught were viable and good and that the LDS Church today has gone awry. Now, they're not the first ones to do this. We know that's happened all through the course of uh, LDS Church history. But it's going to be fascinating. His name's Brian, if he comes on the show, and we're going to have a sit down and talk about the implications of how are you a Mormon uh, relative to no access to temples, uh, different things like that, and just to hear what he has to say. What that is, really, is it is subjective Mormonism. It's someone who's saying, I'm going to get away from the brick and mortar of Mormonism, but I'm going to continue to follow the teachings of uh, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, etc. So it'll be, it might be a fascinating show. Uh, Jay Ball, our friend up in Logan, he recommended uh, this man to me, and I've talked to him on the phone, and he's con- I think he's interested in doing it. We'll have to see. So that may be coming up. Joshua C. says, uh, I'm interested to know your biblical take on whether we as Christians are called upon to vote. And um, he says, your insights are greatly appreciated. And I would just say this, Joshua, that uh, biblically speaking, uh, no, there's no uh, need to vote. Uh, Pay taxes? Yes, Jesus talked about the tax. That was a temple tax, actually. But uh, obeying the laws of the land? Yes, Supporting and sustaining the leadership that is put over us to govern our countries? Yes, all of those things are there. But I think that some would say it's your responsibility as an American to vote. But uh, being an American and being a Christian are two different things. They are two different things. And so I don't see any biblical support for a Christian having to vote though I see a lot of Christian churches making it seem like it's written in every passage of the Bible. Uh, I don't think it is. I don't vote. I don't care. Uh, I don't believe I have any sway over who's going to be in office and who's not. And I believe that God is going to be the one who takes care of it. If we get somebody who's horrible in office, I will bear what that means on my life. If we get someone great in office, I will bear what that means on my life too, all the time praising God for what he's doing through it. But so in my own personal life, I personally don't believe I have any reason to vote as a Christian, and I don't. Other Christians believe it's very important, but it has nothing to do with the faith. If you can show me Jesus going to the uh, voting booth and telling Peter to go and cast his ballot for the next emperor, eh, then we'd have something to talk about, but we don't see it because I think they're totally separate. His kingdom's not of this world. It's of a different place, a spiritual kingdom. 
We are cutting sh the shows a little bit shorter as we go. If we're lacking calls or if I don't have as many emails to cover. So we're going to cut it short, a little bit short tonight. And we'll see you next week, maybe with Brian here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride, going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the And I won't be coming out, I'm going in This man's awake, a storm's arising The dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the light Start to